Welcome to the Northern Australia Food Futures Conference podcast. The Biennial Conference is Australia's leading event on agricultural development in the North, an area covering over half of Australia's landmass, but housing just 5% of the national population. In this podcast series, we sit down with a range of guests to explore the 2023 conference theme, Northern Myths, Realities and Opportunities and provide a preview of the discussions that will take place at the event, which attracts over 600 national and international delegates. Tickets for the conference, held in Darwin, May 22 to 25, are available at foodfuturesntfarmers.org.au. We look forward to seeing you there. My name is Bruce Connolly. I'm currently the farm manager at with Tipperary Group of Stations. I'm also the president of a recently formed Northern Cotton Growers Association in the Northern Territory. Bruce, what brought you to the Northern Territory and how long have you been here? I came up to the Northern Territory in uh, February of 2016. I started with Tipperary Group. Tipperary Group had changed hands and, and was reincarnating itself in a new line of business, which included livestock and farming. And the current regime was looking for a farm manager to oversee their, their farming projects and that job was offered to me and has been my position since then. And what sort of farming was Tipperary looking to become involved in? Initially, uh, Tipperary was looking for a program of pasture improvement and fodder crops and forage crops and hay crops in order to um, promote the cattle business that they were operating. Now Tipperary has moved into cotton production. Can you provide an overview of the cotton industry in the Northern Territory? And it's it's quite new, isn't it? So cotton has been grown on and off uh, right across the north of Australia, probably since as early as the 50s. Um, we can find uh, information on it. Um, most recently, uh, crops with genetic modification were uh, banned in the Northern Territory and that ban was lifted in 2019 or maybe a little bit earlier I think anyway in 2019 we grew a crop of cotton at Tipperary Station with a a double-edged purpose and one of the purposes obviously was the cash sales of the lint going back into the business and the second wing of that was the seed production of the cotton that could go back into the supplementary feeding of the cattle during the during the season. I was just about to ask you, why would people want to grow cotton in Northern Australia? It's predominantly cattle country and you think of cotton, we we wear it, we don't eat it, but it sounds like there is a byproduct which can be eaten by the cattle. Yeah, so the cotton seed is going to be invaluable to the graziers. Most of the graziers will have had some experience with cotton seed at one point or another. They understand the value of it. It's almost a whole food for the livestock. And being that hundreds of thousands of tonnes and hundreds of thousands of dollars of loose lick comes up to the Northern Territory and hundreds of thousands of dollars get spent on bringing it into the Northern Territory, it makes good sense if we can grow some of that supplementary feed here. And the cotton seed is going to going to be just that. Whether it's fed as a, um, a whole seed on its own or whether it's blended with other products to give some trace elements to the animals, that will be up to the individual growers but hopefully we'll be able to grow enough of the seed here in the Northern Territory. 
Most of the cattle in Northern Australia or a significant portion of them are destined for live export because we don't have the capacity, generally speaking, to finish off cattle to a slaughter weight, which is why it kind of works to send them overseas where they kind of finish them off and slaughter them. Is cotton something that may change that? Or is it just looking to, to increase their weights before they're exported or to potentially have them be at a slaughter weight within Australia? Uh, I think that uh, in situations where um, we'll see early weaning of, of uh, calves, they, um, they can go into a, a fed situation. A cotton seed meal um, combined with uh, hay or a silage or something being fed to those weaners will be a, a really good boost to their um, weight gains and will get them to a weight range earlier. It's also going to be a wonderful product to feed to the breeding stock in order to keep them on a, on a certain level of nutrition and hopefully help them to help the breeders to cycle a bit more often or more regularly, depending on which breeding program they're into. And then as far as fattening an animal for a different market, yes, I think it's my own personal opinion that there could be a a softening of breeds and and an opening to a different market. So that would be a lot of there'd be a lot of work to be done around that space, but I believe that there's absolutely an opportunity for that. All right, so we're going to be talking about the myths, realities and opportunities surrounding the cotton industry as that is the theme, well, the myths, realities and opportunities in Northern Australia is the theme of the 2023 Northern Food Futures Conference. So I know this is something we could do a whole podcast series on, so we'll try and keep it relatively short and sweet. But let's start talking about some of the myths surrounding the cotton industry in the Northern Territory and perhaps even Northern Australia. Well, certainly the biggest myth surrounding the cotton industry has been the biggest myth for the last 40 years, and that hasn't changed in the Northern Territory, and that is the water use around irrigated cotton. Uh, I must say that as the cotton cropping industry develops in the Northern Territory, and won't be just cotton, it'll be a range of crops, there'll be rotational crops grown in conjunction with cotton, but there will be a a rain-fed model of cotton, of cropping, there will be a rain-fed model of cropping in the Northern Territory, uh, as well as an irrigation model. Um, What we have seen uh, over the past 30 years or so with cotton is that the genetic developments and uh, improvements of varieties in varieties of cotton has seen it produce the same amount of lint for half the amount of water. Or to put it another way, if you use the same amount of water on that cotton, you can produce twice as much lint and therefore seed. So we're getting twice out of it 30 years down the track than we were 30 years ago for the same amount of water. So that's the that's the biggest myth. Putting it very succinctly and plainly, cotton is about middle to lower middle of the range as a water-using crop, whether it's rain-fed or irrigated. Now, in the rain-fed model, what that means is just like any dryland farmer, if you don't get a good wet season, you're not going to get a good crop. That's the gamble you take with farming. It's the same with your livestock. If you don't get a good wet season, you're not going to get a lot of feed to feed your livestock. In the irrigation industry, obviously, or in the irrigated side of things, obviously you are able to control your inputs much more, and that would mean that uh, on a on a poor wet season you might trap less water, but you would still be able to grow a smaller area to maximum efficiency. Um, in a good wet season, obviously you can trap a little bit more water. Something the cotton industry is not condoning in north of Australia is uh, is damming rivers and streams. 
We're absolutely not interested in damming rivers and streams. We we do believe that there is a, a wet season uh, water harvest capability for the north and uh, we're working closely with governments to work through that. Um, I think we've, so far we've arrived at a really good policy which has been released for public comment mm-hmm. and we'll continue to work with government about that. It's a rigorous process and, and, uh, it's a, it's very good to have these, um, rigorous guidelines in place for, uh, any future water harvesting that might take place. Uh, further to the water, a- another myth will be the amount of land that's going to be cleared for, uh, for farming in the north. I must preface these next comments by saying that only 0.26% of the Northern Territory is cleared now. So if you if you get your calculator out and you have a look at that, there's 130-odd million hectares in the Northern Territory and 0.26% of that is cleared. All of the Northern Territory is not going to suit farming in whatever guise, whether it's irrigated or dry land. Uh, obviously, the further north you are, the better opportunity you have to farm during the wet season. If you're lucky enough to be able to be in a position where you can apply for and be granted an irrigation license, well, then you're going to have a little bit more security depending on the security of that water license. So that combined with the amount of arable suitable land in the Northern Territory is not going to see um, just ad hoc clearing in the Northern Territory. We're not, uh, I, I really struggle to see any more than about possibly 50 to 80,000 hectares absolute absolute top of the range within the next 10 years i'd be i'd be surprised if it gets to that level speaking of myths and land clearing and water use i suppose when you think about it what one person considers a myth can very well be someone else's reality because i was going to say a myth that i know of but as I say that, I recognise and acknowledge that for some people it is their reality and that is what they believe, which is, you know, that's just the beauty of living in a free world, is that there's kind of no rules up here. Like you can just do what you want when you want. You're not really going to get in trouble. It's kind of the old Wild West up here and we don't have rules. Can you speak to some of the legislation and the regulation involved in the water use and the land clearing and to maybe hopefully bust the myth that you can just do whatever you want when you want? Sure. Okay. Well, look, I must say that there is no development, no development of any kind in any place anywhere in Australia without some kind of land clearing, without some kind of impact on the environment. The idea is not to have zero impact. The idea is to have development with the smallest impact we can possibly have. So speaking to that, if we have, if we take land clearing, for example, there are there are very rigorous permitting guidelines that the government will make any farmer adhere to or any landholder um, will have to adhere to these uh, guidelines. And they surround, you know, wildlife corridors, protections for the streams and waterways, uh, environmental concerns for the flora and fauna of the, of the particular area where the permit uh, may or may not be applied for. So... It's, it's quite an involved process. Sometimes it can take, you know, 12 to 18 months to get these permits approved, depending on what processes an individual farmer might have to go through. Regarding water, it's no different. There, there is a very long process to go through. You must make application for a license. The license is for an amount of water for a 10 year period, generally speaking, but is reviewed annually to let you know, to let the farmer know how much 
allocation they can take on that licence in any one year, depending on what the previous wet season rainfall has been and recharge of, a, of an aquifer, whether it's underground aquifer or whether it's a river or stream. The water licence does not denote which crops you can or can't grow. Uh, what we're seeing is that some licence holders, some water licence holders to irrigate in the Northern Territory are swapping out fodder crops and forage crops for perhaps a cotton crop, which will become part of their cropping rotation. Now, they may grow two or three cotton crops. I don't, I can't see that it's going to be uh, the situation where we will grow cotton back to back for 30 years. I think it will be a, a very good rotation crop for disease breaks and cash cropping. And then we'll see a rotation out of cotton to, um, to a fodder or a grain or a cereal or something like that. Uh, it won't, won't just be cotton on cotton. That water license also applies to any flood harvest that uh, a grower or a, a farmer may want to do or a landholder. So the flood harvest will hopefully in the future will exist in the wet season as a wet season offtake from the high flow month, which is basically January, February, March. And once again, it will be subject to the same rigorous licensing approvals. It is a very involved process and, um, and I commend the government on making it very involved and, and rigorous so that we can get it right, right from the beginning. I have to say that Northern Territory is a greenfield site as far as farming agriculture goes. And we have a terrific opportunity to get it right, right from the beginning. We can do it better than has ever been done before in Australia and and the Northern Territory has an opportunity to hold up agricultural farming in the Northern Territory and, and scream it from the treetops that we're doing it the best in the world. We have an opportunity to produce ethically grown and developed country and uh, I think we should take that opportunity. So we're almost done with the myth sections. We've covered off on water use, land use and land clearing and, you know, this kind of idea that it's all the Wild West up here or the Wild North, you know. You can do what you want when you want. That leaves us with just one myth. I mean, I'm sure there's many others, but one that has been particularly uh, visible in recent times is we've talked about cotton, the fact that it's so good to grow up here because we've got plenty of sun and water or the, and, and great land, perfect conditions. But is it going to grow where we don't want it to grow? Is it going to become a weed, particularly along the highway where we see lint coming off from the modules as they are transported out of the territory to a cotton gin in Queensland? Sure. So that leads into two things. First thing is that we hope to not have to transport our cotton down south in the coming years. We are building a cotton gin in the Northern Territory and uh, hopefully that company has that online for harvest this season. All indicators are that they will have, which will be a terrific, terrific thing for the industry. Just on the roadside cotton, cotton that falls off a truck, the cotton is a natural product and it biodegrades very quickly. Which is why you see it at harvest time and for maybe a month afterwards and then the rain and sun breaks it down as it's laying on the surface and you don't see it again for the rest of the season. And it doesn't grow through the wet season, otherwise we would have veritable forests along the roadside of cotton. So this, this issue while raising its head every single year is, is just a non-event. We've had white papers and studies done on roadside cotton in the past. It can grow, but it doesn't grow. It just doesn't grow and reproduce like we're being accused of. And just about every roadside in the Northern Territory is slashed or burnt annually. So it's got 
very little chance of becoming an issue. So over the five seasons that we've planted cotton and shifted it from the Northern Territory to Queensland for processing, we haven't seen these veritable forests of feral cotton growing on the roadsides. It just doesn't happen. I, I really think that should be the end of the argument. It doesn't grow wild. Now, moving on to realities, what is the reality of running a cotton business in the Northern Territory? Obviously, it's in its infancy. It's not established like it is down south. And you just mentioned about the, the need for infrastructure like a cotton gin. So what has it been like trying to develop an industry from scratch? I know you said it was grown many, many years ago, but essentially this kind of last go around is doing it from scratch. Sure. Well, first of all, the issue of freight. Uh, so anything in the Northern Territory has a has an enormous issue of freight surrounding it. So if you want to get planting seed up from down south, you add in an extra freight component. If you want to take modules, well, what we've been having to do so far, if you want to take your product south for processing, you have to add in a massive freight component. If you want to buy machinery from southern regions and bring it to the north, you add in another massive freight component. It's very, very difficult to do what we're doing at the moment, but it is actually doable. So as we move forward, we'll have more experience in the game, we'll have more southern experience, we'll have more agronomic experience and professionalism that comes into the industry. The agronomists and, and people who are working in the industry at the moment have brought some experience from, from other regions and look, they're, they're doing a terrific job. But as the industry grows, they, they won't be able to handle it all. So we'll need to have some more people involved in the industry. So as with many things in Northern Australia, it sounds like it's a really expensive project expensive to grow it expensive to get it to market is it worth it then or is it the case of you mentioned that the gin was being built and obviously that will significantly impact your 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 freight costs to market or to processing is it a case of is it was it really viable or did you just need someone to be that angel investor in the first five years to kind of get it going and once you have the infrastructure here it is a viable industry and it's just going to be the first few years are just going to be kind of lean and tough and you kind of got to ride them out. Yeah, okay, a little bit of both. Somebody has to has to lead the way, but we also need those need those other few things to help it get underway. So processing plant obviously is going to change things enormously. Uh, what we hope to see there is that maybe in 2 to 3 years we might be able to add an export arm to the cotton processing and actually export it directly from the port of Darwin. All the markets for Australian cotton is north of Australia. There's nothing south of Australia except for ice, and uh, you've got to go a long way to get there too. So our markets being north just makes good sense that we can export this product from Darwin. Uh, we're looking into the opportunities that exist there, and and we hope to be, have something in place maybe within about 24 months. That would be that would be a wonderful situation. It is an expensive crop to grow in the north, but then anything that you grow in the north seems to be an expensive operation, not least of which is the freight that surrounds that. But the cotton, the cotton prices have, have been with us in the most recent years and has enabled us to be profitable with this. The biggest help to that profitability is going to be the cotton gin itself. Developing this cotton industry, particularly in the Northern Territory, I know there's going to be a lot of other people in other industries kind of keenly watching and seeing how you guys did it because – there's many things that could be done around Australia, but the infrastructure doesn't exist. I know somebody in 
central WA who wants to develop a camel industry. Like we've got, you know, we've got so many camels in Australia that we could be processing them or exporting them. I mean, we do in very small numbers, but there's not infrastructure for transport, for processing, same, you know, many other things. And it really just, you know, it always comes back to this, well, we've got all the raw materials, but we kind of just need a to win the lotto so we can build the stuff. How did you guys attract the investment to build a cotton gin and to get all this equipment up here? You know, like that's a huge capital investment. Yes, it is, and and it's a it's a long road to hoe. Uh, there's no doubt about that. With it, with any new industry, obviously, it's always chicken and egg. Do you build the industry or do do you build the processing plant so that an industry can grow? I don't know what the answer is there. The way we did it was we uh, we proved what we could do, so we grew the crop. We uh, we proved that we could grow the crop. We suffered the injustice of the high freight cost to send it south for processing, so we've got a proof of industry, and then we attracted some investment for the cotton gin, and uh, we put that on the table to say, well, let's, let's try and do this, and uh, lo and behold, it has sprung up. So there's also some other avenues that could be explored, you know, there's uh, there's certainly government help for new industries, and those uh, avenues should be explored for every every new industry. I think. Yeah, I think this this will be a great case study of developing an industry in the north. I mean, I can't speak about other previously established industries like mangoes or melons. Um, I I just don't have that experience. But seeing what's been done with cotton, hopefully, other people that are looking to invest in. Who knows what else up here, whether it is a food and fiber industry or something else. We'll be able to see this and see that, yeah, you just need, it looks, sounds like you just need someone with a vision and a healthy bank account, uh, to kind of help support those first few years and just really the, the vision to see it through. Yeah. So I think, I think that's probably a pretty fair comment. We've, we've also had a very strong relationship and good relationship with the Northern Territory government. NTGov has been very supportive of agriculture and continues to be very supportive of agriculture. I think that's a wonderful position for farmers to be in. I think if if people are looking at coming to the north of Australia to go farming, uh, particularly in the Northern Territory, make yourselves known. You should make yourselves known to the government. Tell them what your ideas are and look for look to them for support because they are very very supportive. It's not often that we have a government who is so supportive of the agricultural industries plural. But we have got one now and we should do whatever we can to maintain that relationship. All right, so let's move on to the third and final section, which is opportunities. Talk to me about the opportunities you see for a cotton industry in Northern Australia. Okay, well, what we talked about before, the fact that you can diversify your pastoral estate or your pastoral holding into uh, broadacre farming as well and they can run in conjunction then whatever you do with cotton specifically, you can you have sales from the lint, which is your cash sales, which obviously goes into the P&L sheet, and then the cotton seed goes back towards your cattle. So there's opportunities there. You may be able to early wean. You may be able to feed for a particular market. If you're, if you're a little bit further south in the Northern Territory and, and have the access to a water licence and irrigation, you may be able to feed your livestock with a view to fattening and sending off to a southern market, like a southern fat cattle market. Okay, and then taking cotton out of the equation and and having a broad acre uh, farming development on your property, uh, obviously then that gives you the capacity to rotate forage and fodder crops 
Now, whether that's a sorghum for uh, forage or a, a corn, we've got a, a few issues with the fall armyworm in corn, but it's, it can still be done. Or it's a pasture improvement or it's a hay crop or it's a legume to regenerate some soil nitrogen or something like that. The diversification means that if cattle prices fall, you've got the got the opportunity to grow a crop which may not be, uh, you, you know, the price of which may not be on the fall as well. It may be on the up and up. It's certainly just a, it's another string to your bow. A third string to that bow may well be the carbon footprint. So by diversifying uh, your farm income and your farm business, you may well be able to reduce your carbon footprint. Or alternatively, you can provide your own carbon sink. Now, now that carbon, soil carbon is a measurable thing and we know what we're looking for and these sort of measurements have only come into this capacity to measure soil carbon has only been made available in more recent times. We can prove now that cotton farming sequesters carbon further down in the soil, which is where it needs to be locked into the soil, and it actually changes form into nitrogen, which is uh, is a hell of a thing for the industry. It proves that we're sequestering carbon. We are not only reducing our carbon footprint, but we are sequestering more carbon than we're using. The uh, So we're carbon negative. Most farming is carbon negative. Wherever you put some stubble back into the soil, um, you're going to be carbon negative. It's so that is going to be a good thing. So to finish up, what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned throughout this experience of bringing cotton to the Northern Territory? <laughs> yeah, the biggest ex- the biggest lesson I've learned is to not think that you know it all. I brought with me thirty plus years of of farming experience from southern regions and when I got here I realised that I wasn't going to be using very much of it. So the biggest piece of advice I would give to somebody coming farming in the north is to is to use your best experience but watch the crop, whatever your crop is, watch your crop and let the crop tell you what it needs. Farming in the north of Australia in the in the tropics is unique in that we have a very defined wet and dry season. Um, you cannot rely on any in-crop rain after a given time, which is usually about that March-April period. Although I, I understand it can rain in every month of the year, it generally doesn't. So a very defined wet and dry season is probably the biggest lesson that I've had to learn to work with up here. And I've actually just thought of one more question, if I may sneak that in at the end. And Speaking at, you know, this whole episode has been about the cotton industry in the Northern Territory, Northern Australia and developing it. But how do you see it impacting the community? We've got regional communities. We've got town centres. We've got the city of Darwin. It's a small population up north. 5% of Australia's population in 50% of Australia's landmass. How do you see cotton impacting on our communities? Okay. Well, uh, what we've seen in other areas in Australia where there's been a broadacre cropping industry, we've noticed that uh, the trickle-down dollar from uh, the farming, from the farmers, moves six places. It's a traceable six places. So uh, what that means is, uh, you know, I sell my product and and get a cheque in my pocket. I go to town and I buy some tyres for my car and the guy I buy them off, he goes down to the cafe and he buys a coffee. The, The guy at the at the coffee shop, he goes downtown and he buys something from the butcher so that he can sell bacon and egg sandwiches in his coffee shop. That's how it moves on. So the trickle-down dollar moves six traceable places 
we've seen regional communities in Queensland and New South Wales reach out to a, a developing broadacre industry, broadacre cropping industry, whether it was cotton or, or corn or, or sorghum or wheat. They've reached out because it's another diversification that can bring income to their small community. It's a very measurable thing. Um, I have seen it in Western Queensland and, uh, and I've no doubt we'll see it again in the Northern Territory.